and welcome to our very first episode of the Hidden Stories of the Royal Parks. In this episode, I chat to Hugh, our wildlife officer who's based in St. James's Park. Along with looking after all the wildlife, Hugh has the amazing job of feeding and caring for our six resident pelicans. We talk about the history and wildlife of the park and Hugh tells me some of the unusual things that most people wouldn't know about St. James's. He also talks about what it's like to work in the park during lockdown without all the throngs of tourists that normally visit us and how the animals are taking full advantage of the quieter atmosphere. It's a great episode and I really hope you enjoy. I'm with Hugh Smith, the Wildlife Officer for the Royal Parks. Hugh, welcome. Hi there, Laura. You all right? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Other yeah. than the uh, quite poor circumstances out there, but yeah, as good as I can as good as I can be. That actually is really good. I was about to ask, you're obviously having to come in and look after all the animals at the moment. How's that going? It's been it's been going quite well, really. So, so to be honest, because the parks are so quiet, um, things like access are nice and easy for me and I haven't really got to come, you know, too close to people with with my job. It's going okay on what I would probably call light duties compared to my usual duties. But um, but all of the yeah, all of my essential tasks I still obviously have to carry out, and that yeah, that usually means feeding things and looking after things. So all Amazing. of those duties yeah, I still have to continue despite the lockdown. So Hugh, that leads me on to um, my first question, which is, what is your job as a wildlife officer? What does it involve? So job title sounds quite self-explanatory, but um, it's maybe slightly more complex than um, than it lets on. But uh, essentially, my primary duties are looking after the wildfowl collection that we have at St. James's Park, making sure that their welfare is good and that they're fed regularly. Uh, that includes our six lovely great white pelicans, which are enormous and require <laughs> require about a kilo of fish each each day. Uh, and and uh, so yeah, they get they get through a fair bit, and also making sure that our other waterfowl are, are well fed. They're also in, in in our collection of birds that we have. So yeah, they're my what I would call my core duties, which I'm I'm having to continue doing at the moment. My other duties really are uh, acting as a, a consultant really through the parks for any issues that we have relating to wildlife. And it doesn't necessarily they don't necessarily have to be issues. Really, anything that comes up that that relates to wildlife. So this could be uh, communicating with our contractors to make sure they're carrying out work in a way that, that suits how we want things to be done in the, in the parks or it could be that we have we have a group of volunteers come in and we want to carry out a particular type of conservation maintenance I will get involved with that and, and oversee some of those types of work so yeah it can be quite a varied job yeah it sounds like it speaking of the pelicans a lot of people are quite shocked to see that we've got pelicans in St. James's Park can you tell us a bit why we have pelicans in the park we have pelicans in St. James's Park because of their historical significance really in the mid 16s 60s, 400 years ago, a Russian ambassador decided to donate, if you like, or gift some pelicans to uh, King Charles II as sort of an elaborate gift. Um, and obviously, they're a beautiful, large white bird, which stand out. And, uh, and they were to go in his menagerie or his collection of birds and, and beasts that were in St. James's Park at the time. That's so, where Birdcage Walk comes from, isn't it? That's where the, the name Birdcage Walk comes from, for that lovely straight road on the, on the south side of St. James's Park. And so the pelicans have been 
been here since the, since the, since the name of that road, really. We believe reasonably that there've probably been periods of time where there haven't been pelicans in St. James's Park, but for the most part, probably for the last 400 years, there have been pelicans in St. James's Park for that period. How have we had them for so long? Do we have ancestors of um, descendants of the ones from 400 years ago? So it's, it's not quite as romantic as that. And actually, no. that probably wouldn't be a good thing if we were breeding from the same same few pelicans as, as from 400 years ago. But they have actually always been donated to us. Um, we, we, we've never we've never bred them here. They may well have done centuries ago, but we haven't bred them here in recent times, mainly because that comes with a whole host of other issues and difficulties, but also mainly because we want to keep our, our flocks small. The lake is only so large and ultimately they are quite big predators. We want them to have a, you know, as minimal impact upon the natural species on the lake that we can. It's five pelicans we have, is it? We we have six. Um, we had Eight. five very briefly this week for a couple of days. On Easter Monday, lovely fully flighted pelican called Gargi, who's famous for a number of other reasons, decided to fly down to Staines on Thames, go on a little holiday down there. No way! So she, she flew down there for a couple of days and was actually roosting on, on a large island down in Staines, which kind of shows that you know they're hardwired to find islands to roost on. That's that's what they do. So if, they get, if you're going to find a pelican somewhere, it's, it's going to be near an island. You know, it's a safe place for it to roost up. Because um, Gargi has an interesting story, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, about how we, she came to us in quite an unorthodox way. So Gargi was actually found in a garden in South End, of all places, which that has some comedy for me because that's where I grew up. So Gargi was, Gargi was actually found in a garden not that far away from where I live. There was a ring around to lots of different places throughout Britain to try and find, you know, where on earth this bird could have come from and, you know, to, in, a, as a, in an effort to kind of return it um, to, to its sort of rightful owner. But um, no one came up with anything. And, we, you know, a couple of weeks went by, I believe, and still no response from anywhere. So the member of the public that found Gargi or found the pelican decided to ring St. James's Park because they realised that we had a small flock of pelicans at the time, the same species. And they're great white pelicans, that is and suggested that maybe we could take it off their hands because we wanted, you know, we wanted the pelican to have good welfare and have a good life. And still to this day, we don't know where Gargi came from. <laughs> We've got several theories. None of them seem to really stick. What but, was the uh, best theory? Well, I think the best, nicest theory is that Gargi actually is a wild great white pelican from Eastern Europe. I think that's probably the nicest theory of them all. But probably Gargi is actually an escapee from, from a collection somewhere where they, where they didn't clip her wings or cut her feathers and she managed to fly away much like she did down to Staines the other day but it that's was amazing about further. Staines yeah how, did, well, how a, did people find out that she ended up in Staines did people see her and document her flying away that's exactly it I mean we, we seem to have quite a good following now on, on our social media pages and several people posted videos and pictures of Gargi on her holiday down at Staines to those pages and we were able to respond and, and explain that yes, this this is our pelican, which you could tell immediately. I mean, when you've been around these birds for a long period, you start to get used to them and start to know sort of how they look as individuals. Because obviously, to someone that, that isn't used to looking at pelicans, they would probably think that pelicans all look the same. But Gargi is quite unique, and yeah, it was, it was obvious that it was her. I think even se several other zoos were actually contacted in that time, but, but luckily they all said no. We, we still have all of our pelicans. That's amazing. We recently got some new pelicans, didn't we? Where did they come from? I say recently, it's, it's it's actually been almost a year now. Wow. Uh, I think arrived in May last year, our new pelicans, Sun, Moon and Star. They came from the, all the way from the Czech Republic, so not that far really from their home range really of great white pelicans. And prior 
dogs who have had in the past have had a breeding program because until relatively recent history, great white pelicans were scarce throughout the world or certainly throughout Europe. They're still scarce in Europe. They're less scarce elsewhere in the world now. So until recently, they, they did have a breeding program. They were at the stage where they had surplus, if you like, pelicans. And then um, when they asked, we would like them uh, you know, for our collection. And we said, yeah, we'd love to have them. We've had an agreement with them for, for the last few decades. And they have supplied us, if you like, with pelicans. It's, it's a very charitable setup. Speaking of how have Sun, Moon and Star settled into our their new flock? So, so initially, it was quite a long time for them to become accepted by the new birds, um, which I think is quite normal. And again, my, my, my predecessor said that usually it takes a matter of weeks and months before they were comfortable with each other on previous introductions. But these, but these guys did seem to roost together quite happily after the first few weeks. So they'd sit on the same rocks at night, but yeah. they, wouldn't sw- they wouldn't swim around with each other for some time. And there were quite a few sort of standoffs where you could see you know, three of them looking at the other three, thinking, who are you? Why are you here? Why are you on my patch? They seemed to suss that out after a while. Amazing. I remember when I first started in the parks, God, three years ago, and I think it was my first day I got to experience what it was like to feed the pelicans. Yeah. And at that time, the three that we had were really quite timid. You know, um, it was a real knack to throw the fish to them that wasn't in a threatening manner. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it wasn't threatening enough. So if, if I threw it too aggressively, they didn't like it. If I didn't throw it close enough to them, they wouldn't like it. But the new pelicans, on the other hand, seem to be very, very different. What are they settling in like? The new pelicans probably are slightly more hand tame, if you like, than the previous pelicans. The three new pelicans have more recently been handled and have more, you know, more recently been in a situation where they're coming into contact with people more. Because in the zoo, they would have probably been hand fed in close quarters so they're, they're quite confident coming up to you but that behavior has started to change okay gradually which which is what we want to see because we'd like them to behave you know as close to how they would in the wild as, as possible really we prefer them to you know almost be feral birds than be completely tame because as we all know tame birds in you know a, a setting where they can interact with people and, and predators doesn't really work very well certainly their natural instincts about them so they, they do seem to be adapting to that and their behavior is changing slightly. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to ask you about behaviours because obviously with lockdown happening at the moment, people are only allowed to go for a walk and preferably somewhere close to to their house. How St. James's Park currently with lockdown, obviously at this time of year, normally it's thronged with people out on their lunch breaks, tourists. What's the feel of the park at the moment? Well, it's completely alien really to what all of us are used to. So anyone that works or indeed walks through the parks this time of the year would know, yeah, that it's... They're, they're packed normally. They're absolutely full of people, whether it's yeah, people on lunch breaks, tourists coming through, even even sunbathers this time of the year with, you know, with the nice weather we've been having. So, um, but yeah, it's, they've, been, they've been very, very empty by comparison. But we've still got quite a hardcore of, well, I would say, probably residents using the parks, particularly St. James and, and, and the Green Park. Behaviour is altered because there are fewer people, there's less traffic on the roads, and also people are probably slightly more alert than they are normally because they're looking at help for other people to avoid mm. and to, and, and to, and to, you know, to distance themselves um, from others. So it's, yeah, the behavior, general behavior of people is different as well as there being fewer, fewer people. And what about the animals themselves? Have you noticed any change in their behavior now that they have the whole parks more more now for themselves? We certainly don't have any, um, any hard data to back any of this up, but there does, anecdotally, there does seem to be a change in some of the behaviors, particularly of some of the larger waterfowl 
now, like the like the geese, usually they wouldn't be happy grazing open areas near busy paths or roads. And they might do very early in the morning, but at the moment they're very happy grazing places they wouldn't normally and stumbling across geese in strange places and, and that and that type of thing. And, and on lawns they probably wouldn't normally be grazing. It does feel more like a country park in that sense. Spring has landed, but a lot of people aren't able to kind of get out and see what's happening at the parks at the moment. So what kind of things have you been noticing in the parks in regards to spring? In terms of blossoms and blooms, that's what most people associate with spring and a lot of our ornamental trees have come into blossom in the parks that we have a lot of cherries in St James's Park and they've produced some really nice blossoms and that's often often even earlier on than right now actually up to the last sort of three weeks they've started producing those the daffodils actually came out quite early this year they always seem to mm. and, and have already started to decay again really now so they're kind of past their best in terms of sort of some of the native flowers we get things like blue aconaut which is a very small almost looks like a forget-me-not flower but it's got large leaves and that's a sort of native species but it quite likes disturbed grassland and rough areas really so it colonizes places that have been trampled quite well so it fits in the park quite well this is this is a native species so not one of mm. our ornamental flowers and also there's some of the dead nettles um really come through so they've got a lovely sort of white flower you know they look they look like a singing nettle but they've got quite a nice white flower that comes through and that's one of my favorite tricks to do to like kids at work is like oh, i can pick up a nettle you know <laughs> And it won't sting me. And they're looking at me like, oh, wow. But obviously it's a dead nettle and, and it doesn't have to. Yeah, exactly. They think I'm a superhero. It's brilliant. <laughs> a lot of people who would come to St. James's Park have probably noticed those two islands that are on either side of the lake. You know, most people can't get access to them. Can you tell people a bit more about what's actually on those islands and why they're there? So the, the, the islands have been around since the park was re-landscaped in the 1850s, I believe. And that was part of the Nash um, sort of re-landscaping and yeah they, they were sculpted really as, um, as, as as landscape features um, because lakes look prettier when they've got islands in them <laughs> and, uh, and originally these probably would have been quite manicured islands but really what we've tried to do is turn them into miniature nature reserves because there aren't many places in the park where people can't go and I'm not saying that everyone um, is an interfering person but, um, but with the quantity of visitors that we have it wouldn't take long for an area like Duck Island or West Island to become quite trampled and we've tried to turn them into nature reserves which has I think has taken some time really and, and I think that's a, a process that's, that's occurred over the last 10 to 15 years and we've still got some work to do on both of the islands really but having unimproved areas is, is absolutely critical for wildlife and for biodiversity. So is that kind of a space where a lot of the birds would be nesting and things like that? It, it would it would have a higher density of nesting birds probably. The, the islands would would have high densities just because there there are fewer predators on them for a start. Land land based predators um, they they receive less disturbance from people and their pets and and they're very secluded. It's a, a sanctuary really or a, a safe haven. That's what we're striving for: undisturbed areas to be nature reserves really. And we have quite a large. You were talking a bit earlier about our collection birds. So we've got collection birds. We've got native birds. We've also got some birds that are migrating and passing through. What are some of your favourite birds that we have in St. James's Park? Pelicans aside. Oh, right. Well, yeah. Pelicans <laughs> aside, because obviously pelicans are my favourite. Yeah, we have a tremendous amount of migrant birds coming through St. James's Park, probably mostly representative of some of the migrants you would see in other parts of London. So we have a lot of, we have lots of nice warblers that come through in the 
the summer. We have reed warblers that use the park and actually breed here in the, in the summer, which is quite nice. They come from the continent in late May time, really. But I think we've actually potentially heard one calling already, so they do turn up earlier than that sometimes. Oh, nice. Um, occasionally, we have rare warblers, such as the Chetty's warbler. Recently, we heard singing in St. James's Park. My colleague was lucky enough to, lucky enough to actually see it. I mean, I, I don't have a, an actual favourite, but the birds that seem to be the most important to me are the kingfisher, which we get occasionally in the summer, the late summer. Beautiful um, some bird. Absolute burst of colour. Really are spectacular. They, they look tropical, really. They, they are magnificent. So that would be one of my favourites. The other is we occasionally get woodcock landing in the park, which are they're sort of a nocturnal, very, very cryptic bird. Which really, really, they're, they're they're a very old game bird. Actually, they <laughs> it seems crazy, really, but they they were a very popular game bird. Because they're really they're, small, aren't they? They're the absolutely tiny. There's not much meat on them, but yeah. um, I believe they're, they're they're popular because they make good sport. But they're a really beautiful bird up close. They they they've probably got some of the most intricate markings of you know any of our native birds. Probably they look like they should be a wading bird. They've obviously adapted and evolved to deal with woodland. So they'll so they'll roost overnight in very dense woodland and then um or, or they'll they'll feed actually overnight and then in during the, the daylight hours they they actually roost because they're nocturnal they, they roost in in dense woodland so they've kind of got some strange adaptations and uh, and i've stumbled across those a few times in st james's park so they're, they're really spectacular and oh. particularly because they're associated with kind of rural areas so seeing in the park is, is really amazing and that brings me back actually to something you were talking about earlier um you were saying about kind of that we have volunteers that come on and do some conservation activities in our parks. Can you kind of tell me about one of the big projects you've been working on? Obviously, we haven't got our volunteers in at the moment. Yes, yeah, sadly, the volunteers haven't been around for the last sort of six weeks. We've had a good following from our volunteer group. Monthly, we've had a work party on Duck Island. They've been carrying out conservation-aimed work, some general tasks as well. Generally, we've been trying to, to clear areas of the island which have good potential as, as kind of shaded meadows, really, because we have very little, going back to what I was saying earlier, we have very little unimproved grassland in, um, in St. James's Park. There is a little bit in Green Park, very little in St. James's Park, and um, and it's those areas that that, that really are the, um, they're the source of life for invertebrates. If you can build a good invertebrate community, that's when you start to see decent communities of birds and other species. Getting those unimproved grassland areas right is is key really to uh, to biodiversity. I had a quick question to ask you about Duck Island Cottage. So I think probably one of the more famous things of St. James's Park, besides the pelicans, is this gorgeous little cottage on Duck Island. I know previously it used to be the home of the bird keeper. Do you live there anymore or what's inside? What's there now? No, I, I, I don't live there. Um, no. <laughs> which I don't think is a shame because it is, it is, quite, it is quite small inside and, uh, and is quite close to the island of the public um, it is a beautiful building and it's certainly been around a very long time and it hasn't looked much different over you know the course of its history it's, yeah, i think it was in the 1800s wasn't it yeah it yeah it's again similar probably in age to the act of the lake around sort of the 1850s or just before it's built in in the style of a, a swiss chalet which is a bit odd and it's certainly built in the style of and i think the victorians were, were good at that <laughs> so, they kind of like doing that then they're going back in time and looking at they did styles mm. and recreating it 
although to them they may have called it a Swiss chalet, it's not what we would associate with um, with a Swiss chalet, maybe. But yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful building, and um, currently it's it's resident for um, the London Parks and Gardens Trust, and they are a, a small charity, or they look after a lot of garden squares in in London. Obviously, you've been working for the parks for a while now. Is there kind of anything about St James's Park that people wouldn't know? Any kind of hidden stories or or secret areas that a lot of people don't get to see or don't get to know about I suppose. Duck Island was actually once the residence of a person who was very closely involved with the invention of champagne mm. and it wasn't it, it, it wasn't actually the champagne grape that's used or the location where first ever produced but it was actually the residence of a person who came up with the type of glass uh, for the bottle champagne initially so champagne wouldn't have existed in the way that we know it if this person hadn't existed oh i'll have um, to do some research so he lived on duck island which is not you know it's not known for being a place to reside he had some title and i think it was lord of duck island (laughs) oh is this the um, governor of duck island i think this was in charles yeah Yeah, i think i remember reading about this i think it was charles ii nominated a governor of duck island which is pretty funny since the only residences are mainly birds or wildlife so hugh what is your favorite uh part of St. James's Park. Well, there are lots of interesting areas of St. James's Park, but probably the most special feeling I get in a place in St. James's Park is when I come down cockpit steps, which are the steps you would take if you were coming into the park from St. James's Park Station. You wind your way down a very, quite a steep kind of set of steps out of the city environment, and suddenly you've got the park in front of you. Kind of contrast to something that's really, really nice, and I think it's unforgettable. So I think if you're visiting St. James's Park, it's a lovely place to come into the park because so I think that's probably one of the most special places I can I can think of. St. James's Park, I think it's had such a history. You know, it's been there for 500 years. Mm. It was originally Henry VIII took over St. James's. I think it was a hospital originally, St. James's Hospital, tore it down and built himself St. James's Palace and turned all the ground around it into the park. And it has, yeah, it's just been an amazing space. There is such a wealth of history in the park. Um, it's quite a contentious one, this, but St. James's Park is meant to be the oldest royal park, despite what the guys at Greenwich might say. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just has a, it has a vast history with so many intricacies that we, you know, we, we barely even scrape the surface, really, of how um, unusual the park is, just how rare some of the things inside the park are. For example, the, the, the building on Duck Island is, is an old pump house. A lot of that building looks looks different to how it did, but, uh, but I've seen the original plans to that building, and it's all drawn by hand, a beautiful Victorian architect's hand. It's all to scale, and it's it's small snippets of information like that which are yeah really special, and we're, we're lucky to work here and, and see these things really. All right, Hugh. So obviously, as part of your job, you have to look after all our fantastic birds. What's one of the strangest jobs that you have to do? There's a number of jobs that I do that are a bit are a bit unusual. But one of the one of the strange things that, that happens, or it certainly creeps me out when it happens, when I when I go to feed the pelicans, um, there is often a bit of an entourage of, of birds that are, are, are chances, you know, that are, that are trying to get in there and maybe get a couple of fish themselves. 
I'm certain it is the same heron every day, but there's a heron that stalks me and follows me around the park. And, <laughs> uh, and it's gone to the stage where it definitely knows who I am because it follows me when I'm not wearing the, you know, a blue apron. So it sort of gives you an idea of the kind of brain capacity that a heron has. It's pretty good. And often I'll be, I'll be crossing Duck Island Bridge. And at the moment, because it's very quiet, any sound is enough to startle you. And so you know, I hear sort of very light footsteps behind me. I turn around and there's this heron stood there looking at me with its beady eyes. So yeah, that is something <laughs> strange and creepy that keeps happening. And, um, you know, I remember actually, we were there was a while where we were feeding the pelicans quite large fish. And I remember this cheeky heron actually coming up and grabbing <laughs> this big piece of whiting. I mean, it was probably treble the size of its neck, yet it managed to swallow it down whole. So it was, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, it's re- <laughs> remarkable what they capable of (laughs) yeah absolutely oh fantastic last question i was going to ask obviously some people are coming still able to get out into the parks what would be the advice that you give for people to help our wildlife main advice really is to go out and enjoy it and see it when you are out for your short periods if you have a pet or you're taking a dog with you to the park just make sure that you're respectful of the wildlife with that animal and then really just take it in don't look down at your phone look up look into the sky you might see a red kite you never know obviously a lot of people can't get out into the park at the moment but i hear you are doing something with the pelicans that people can at least feel like they're still in the park We've come together and thought maybe that a live pelican feeding session would be quite a nice thing for people to see. The pelicans being fed is something that does attract attention. And obviously at the moment we're trying to do the opposite of attract attention to anything and have you know groups visiting the park or crowds coming to look at things in the park. So we thought perhaps maybe doing some sort of remote viewing of, um, of the pelicans being fed might be something that, that would go down well. Yeah, that's amazing. I think I have it on good authority. The first one's due to come out on the 8th of May, and I think they're going to be every second Friday. They'll be live, I think, on our Facebook um, our Facebook feed, and that should be going on until mid-June, I believe. But that yeah, that would be amazing. I feel, I feel like I can tune in and get to see our lovely pelicans. I'm really missing them, actually. Thank you so much for coming on, Hugh. It was really, really great talking to you. If people do want to find out more about the live feeding that we're going on, you can go on to our social media channels. We're on the Royal Parks London is our handle on Facebook. Um, and once this is all over, um, myself and Hugh actually co-deliver a monthly walk in St. James's Park called The Hidden Stories of St. James's Park. And they happen on the last Friday of every month. So once we return back to normal, hopefully you can come along to that too. Hugh, thanks very much for coming on and I hope you have a really nice day. Thanks, Laura. It's been nice chatting. Thanks. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the very first episode of The Hidden Stories of the Royal Parks. We're thrilled to be able to give you a closer look at our historic green spaces. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought of the show and what you're interested in learning about in our future podcasts. You can find us on Facebook at The Royal Parks London and on Instagram and Twitter at The Royal Parks. The Royal Parks is a charity that cares for the eight Royal Parks of London. If you're interested in learning a bit more about how you can support us, please go to royalparks.org.uk forward slash support. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to bringing you another Hidden Stories of the Royal Parks very soon. <laughs>